Today we're going to be in Revelation 21, starting with verse 9. And the last time we saw the new heaven and the new earth created, and what gets to continue into eternity, and what really gets sloughed off. And today we're going to see the new Jerusalem descending from heaven and what that means. The, just a little bit about this is that um, I found this book so revolutionary, so f- much fun to study. I've got so much good feedback, and we only have this chapter and, and one more chapter to go, and we're done with Revelation. But we're getting into a field now where God is preparing this city. It comes down from heaven, and uh, we're trying to explain it. John, the Apostle John, was taken to a a remote place in a high mountain to really look at this city in its entirety. The angel brings him over there, and he's kind of probably blown away by it too. And with his little pen and paper, he writes down what he's seeing. Um, Does it do it justice on a piece of paper, black and white? Probably not. Am I going to do it justice even though I'm going to expound upon it? Probably not. What we're trying to understand is, as finite beings and a finite mind now, this concept of eternal things that we'll understand later. So again, when we see it, we're going to be blown away, um, but I'm going to do the best I can to explain it. Okay, starting with verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me, the Apostle John, and talked with me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, tribes of the children of Israel, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, or 1,377 miles, translation. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, roughly 216 feet, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. And the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. New Jerusalem is descending, beautifully adorned as a bride prepared for her husband. And we talked a little bit about current Jerusalem and, you know, the history of Jerusalem. And we talked about how God made the new heavens and the new earth. But our current Jerusalem in its state state was stained with the blood of the prophets. Let me take a scripture from the Old Testament, and then I'll go to the New Testament. 2 Chronicles 36, 14 through 16, three verses. 
And this is basically the state of what God considered to be a holy city and what man did to it. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he has consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no more remedy. And we saw that just after this, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians came, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem uh, they destroyed the temple, they took the people captive and carried them away to Babylon. So this was their punishment. In the New Testament, Luke 13, Jesus speaks about Jerusalem too. Luke 13:31. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he, Jesus, said to them, Go tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. So you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, if you look at your history, a lot of God's people, prophets, priests, uh, were killed by God's own people. 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here's a brief synopsis of Jerusalem, and if you follow the Old Testament, the teachings we do on Wednesday night, uh, God had to continually rebuke his people uh, for, for their debauchery and what they did and perpetrated on his own messengers in Jerusalem. But we see God will make all things new, and I surmised or speculated last time that it's possible that this new city, this new Jerusalem, you know, we, we talk about the Bible, Hebrews, different scripture, talks about how everything that was made perfect here according to uh, Moses' um, you know, measurements that God gave him, etc., were a copy of those in heaven, and it's quite possible that this new Jerusalem was the original, and it's speculation. But what an honor it was for the Apostle John that one of God's most trusted angels gives him a, a virtual tour, in essence, of future events. And let me state this first, that we keep seeing the word, the lamb, used. Now, the lamb, obviously, is Jesus. And the lamb is continually used because it's eternally understood throughout all time the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, for Jews and Gentiles alike, uh, for the remission of our sins, is shed blood. Now, a few points of discussion. Uh, this book is, this particular chapter, there's probably more discussion on this chapter and the next chapter than a lot of the other portions of the book. But the first thing is, it says here that this new Jerusalem comes down as a bride uh, for her husband, for the lamb, for Christ. But what about the church? Isn't the church the bride of, of the lamb, of Jesus? And the answer is yes to both. You see, the bride of Christ is all the redeemed believers, but it's also a city adorned like a bride with all the accoutrements for the, her husband, the lamb. They go hand in hand. Let me give you an example. So the, the city and the people are really synonymous. The people, the redeemed, go with this city. Okay? The city is also prepared for the people. 
If you say, just as an example, New York is a wicked city, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about bridges, buildings, cars? No, we're talking about the inhabitants of the city. You see how they go hand in hand, right? You talk about the city, but you're not talking about inanimate objects. There's no uh, evil or good assigned with inanimate objects. We're talking about its inhabitants. Um, I apologize to the New Yorkers. I'm also, I was also born in New York. It was just an example. Okay, the second point of healthy discussion is the building's sheer size. This city, if you multiply these numbers, the, um, this, the furlongs, and you, you get the translations, and you multiply roughly 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. It's length, width, and depth. It's three-dimensional. What you get mathematically, and you can do this on a calculator, is almost 3 billion cubic miles. Now, I didn't say square miles, I said cubic miles. This is a huge city. It's three dimensions, not two. And what it does is it also gives, an, gives us an insight into our new abilities. Remember, we have new bodies at this point. It's not these bodies of decay anymore. In a twinkling of an eye, the Apostle Paul says, we shall all be changed. Instead of terrestrial creatures, we'll be celestial creatures. We'll be able to navigate the heavens and the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. So it is quite possible that not only do we, so we would say we have a city, and we think of my property as measured in square footage or, or acres, but this property is now measured in cubic miles. So there's, a, there's an, a height deal. So is it possible that we'll be able to, in our new bodies, just go from one state to another, go up and down, as well as left and right? Right now I'm kind of, I just keep coming down, right? Gravity. But it's quite possible that we'll be able to move up and down, left and right, into different dimensions. You know, this is going to be a, an exercise, really, of your mind today. When you see what God has done, we're, we're so used to looking at, you know, what, what we see in the observable universe. But what we're seeing is that God makes things that are so fantastic, uh, and we're trying to explain it on paper, but we're going to have incredible new capabilities uh, in our new spiritual bodies. Okay. Now, some believe because the city is massive and it's very tall, and probably um, if you were to put it on a scale, it would be, weigh as much as a, possibly a continent, that this city really hovers instead of touching down to earth. And the theory is that, you, you know, like when you get your, your wheels balanced at the mechanic, you know, you got, I got a wobble in my wheel, and they balance them, and you can go pretty fast now, and the car doesn't shimmy. Well, if you take some mud or snow and pack it into your rim on one side and then drive, you're going to have that wobble again. It's out of balance. So some say, well, this city is so massive and huge uh, that it must be hovering over the earth and not actually touching down because the earth would start to wobble. So there's all these theories now that people come up with because it's, it's incomprehensible. But think about this. If we had one square mile, okay, and let's just say we picked this area out one square mile and however many of us, we went outside and we were able to move freely. We could easily fit in one square mile and enjoy ourselves and maybe have a little personal space. But now if we had one cubic mile, we might not even see each other that well because there would be so much space. So what I'm trying to say is that it's quite possible that with three billion cubic miles that this city could possibly hold hundreds of billions of redeemed, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, if we all wanted to get into the city at the same time comfortably. Again, we're exercising our minds today. The third point of discussion is with all its precious gems and its sheer grandiosity, it causes many to allegorize this whole thing. 
Well, it's just so fantastic that it must be symbolic for something. And that's an excuse for us to say, well, I don't really believe that God can do amazing things and I don't believe the miracles because I'm confined to this world, so it must be symbolic. We're afraid, because I'm telling you, listen, there's times that I'll say to you, I know this for a fact, there's a heaven, there's a hell, I'll tell you that. Then there's times where I'll say, I think, I'm not sure, read my words, because again, this is fantastic and I haven't seen it. So I'm doing the best I can to explain it to you. But if we allegorize everything or make something or everything spiritual in God's word, again, it's a sign that we don't believe in God's miracles. We don't believe that he can take our dimension and stretch it and do things with us that we haven't uh, been able to comprehend. That we don't believe in God's grandeur. And it's also an excuse for spiritual ignorance. There are those who try to spiritualize this whole book and say, well, it's just emblematic of good versus evil. So basically we have 22 chapters in detail of a fairy tale. And I don't believe that. I believe that if we can, we need to take his word literally. Unless it tells us that there's a vision. So then it's kind of leading us into something. This is a vision. This is a representation of something bigger. But the whole book isn't like that. I believe that if you look at the grandiosity of what I just read, God is basically saying to man, you've been trying to build cities for thousands of years. You know, build skyscrapers, build, you know, railways and, and tunnels, and this is a city. And God looks at that and goes, you think that's a city? Look what I do. Now that's a city. <laughs> you see the difference? You want a city? I'll show you a city. That's a city. It just blows us. Anything that man can create, God created something far more extravagant. Yes, we're literally talking about something that's literally out of this world and comes out of heaven to, to the earth to be prepared for us. If you think about it, earth is really a miracle too, but it's a miracle we've gotten used to. But this is going to blow away earth. You look at the universe, the, the galaxy, all these things, and, and there's no planet, there's nothing that supports the life that we do, and it supports the atmosphere and the temperature conditions and um, humans. The, the SETI project, how many of you heard of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? It's been 10 years that we've sent out signals looking for life all throughout the, the, the heavens, right? 10 years. It's like the, like the cartoons. All we've heard is crickets. <laughs> Nobody's sending anything back to us. That's how amazing Earth is. It's, it's just this creation that God made, that he put us here, and all the conditions are perfect to support life. This city. This city is in contrast to man's achievements. Babylon was a great city. And it was, it was so boasted by King Nebuchadnezzar, and he took so much credit for it, that God made him for seven years eat grass like an ox and, and like a wild man be on all fours. He taught him a lesson. Anything that you can do, it's because I've given you that ability to do it. So you look at man's cities, Babylon, Rome, all the worldly, carnal, and sinful cities. We could look at cities today. And sometimes cities are a way for those to flock together and sin together. And all the vices are in one place. Hey, this is a great city. Let's sin, right? Look at Las Vegas. It's been, it's been named, and anybody here from Las Vegas, I apologize, but Sin City. You've seen the commercials. What happens here stays here, right? And you, you, there's all these pictures of what's going on in Las Vegas, and everyone's giggling, and well, let's not tell anybody when we get back. What happens here stays here. It's very curious, though, that Las Vegas lies in the middle of a desert. 
So um, that's interesting right there. But you see the dichotomy between those who look for a good time, nightlife, partying, all kinds of vices versus God's eternal city. And where am I going with this? That's where the real peace comes from. That's where the real fun comes from. You know, next chapter, after uh, Resurrection Sunday, the next chapter, you got to be here for this because, you know, even Christians have this idea that, well, I better have fun now because when I die and I go to heaven, I'm going to be floating around on a cloud and playing a harp and I'm going to be really bored for eternity. We're going to have fun, guys. And, and I'm going to talk to you about the theory or which century some of this stuff started to come in here. Like, it, there's a term called Christoplatonism where this, this idea came in that when you go to heaven, it's dull and boring and you're not going to have fun. That's not true. And we're going to talk about that in chapter 22. My discussions with those who are still unfulfilled, who are looking for this fun time, we've got to have fun. It doesn't matter what happens when I die because here's, here's where it's at. That's a lie from the devil. It's going to be fun. It's going to be peaceful. It's going to be a great time when we're out of this world. But... I've talked to folks who are still looking for that, 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 that fun, that pleasure to fulfill their souls. And you know what it's like? It's like when you're floating on the raft in the middle of the ocean, waiting to be picked up, and you're so thirsty, and you keep drinking seawater. You could drink that seawater all you want. It's just going to make you more thirsty. And that's what sin is. That's what the fun in this world is really about, that people are looking for. And I have a lot of friends who are not saved, and I love them dearly. And with my conversations, they know I'm a pastor, you know, they'll talk about their unfulfilled lives. And I'll ask them, are you ready yet? And some of the answers I get are, you know, you're right. Or, I should. Or, I'm looking for a change of scenery, but just one more night. I'm just looking for that one more hit, that one more, uh, you know, event that I think is going to fulfill me. And this goes on for years and years and years and years. And they're wondering why they're still not fulfilled. Well, it's right here. This is where it's at. Verse 12. You see a lot of numbers here in the Bible, and if you didn't catch it, there's 12 gates, there's 12 angels, there's 12 foundations, there's 12 tribes of Israel, and there's 12 apostles. You think we're supposed to learn something from this? 12 appears to be, from the the Scripture, the number of perfect authority or perfect government. The 12 gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel resting on 12 foundations with the name of the 12 apostles. This is a completeness and a perfection and harmony between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are brought together under one tent. And you know what? I love the Old Testament. I love referring back to the Old Testament. I love weaving the tapestry of the Old Testament and the New Testament because they're in harmony. That's another lie that man has perpetrated. Well, this is the Old Testament, and that's the New Testament. They refer back to each other. To really understand the book of Revelation, if you're with us for some time, we went through a lot of the Old Testament, and we're still going to do that. I just want to read you a scripture in Ephesians 2. Uh, Ephesians 2, just a few verses. He says, now therefore you are no longer, starting with verse 19, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being himself the chief cornerstone. Let me refer back to the Old Testament now. 
Psalm 118, 22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Roughly a thousand years before the Messiah, it was already prophesying. And if you look at all the rabbinical, you say, well, how do we know that that refers to? If you look at all the rabbinical texts of the Old Testament, they all said, well, this is messianic. They had a whole list of messianic scriptures prior to the Messiah coming. So the apostles, the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone on which the foundation is, is laid, he is the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. So it kind of gives you the whole building and how it works together, and it really kind of coincides with what we're talking about here. Okay. So here we see God's plan for humanity. You see the foundation, you see the building, and um, it kind of wraps it up. Verse 18, we talk about these, or the Apostle John speaks of these 12 multicolor stones. And if you look at the stones, I was going to go into every color, and some of them you know are stones today. And, and even in the Old Testament, there's a lot of parallel and similarity between these stones. Uh, something that should come to mind is the high priest in the Old Testament, he had a breastplate that when he went into the Holy of Holies, he had to wear uh, this breastplate, and it had 12 stones in rows. And on each stone was engraved one of the tribes of the children of Israel. Uh, and what that tells us that is the high priest went in and he mediated for the children of Israel. He came in to atone for their sins before the mercy seat, sprinkling the blood of the innocent lamb. So he came in as a mediator to the children of Israel. The high priest had great access to God and greater access than really anybody else because if anybody else was just to walk into the Holy of Holies, they would die. And furthermore, the uh, priest, the high priest would wear bells on his garments and he, the, he would have a rope uh, that was tied around him. And if the bell stopped ringing, they would pull him out because he probably got struck down. It was so perfect when he would go in and he would mediate for the people that if he messed up, the fear was that God would strike him down. So they would have to pull him out with the rope. So it's very interesting. What it tells us now really is that everyone has access to God. If these stones are one for one, that this city, that God's city is everyone now has access to God. And we don't need that Old Testament system anymore. And imagine the radiance of this city when God's light shines through these stones. And you, you see clear, clear glass, radiance, um, you know, the, the, it's just, again, it, you have to use your imagination because we're going to talk about God's light and then God's light ref, uh, shines through the city and, and reflects and refracts and it, it must be just so uh, dazzling to the eye. But let's focus on the pure gold because gold is mentioned twice here. Let's just talk about gold that, that we know of, okay? If you look up gold, you'll find that it's dense, it's malleable, it's ductile. This is why the, a monetary standard is based on it. It's, it's a very good for conductivity of heat and electricity. Uh, it's very resistant to corrosion. And actually, you could take, I believe it's an ounce of gold, and beat it so flat and so thin gold leaf that you could get a square meter out of it. It's pretty amazing stuff. And it, 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 you can make it so thin that it becomes transparent. And when light is shined, it actually appears a, bluish, a pretty bluish green. So these are some things about gold. We know that it's used today in electronics, in aircraft, as, as a money standard, and also, believe it or not, in pharmaceuticals. In its purest form, gold is a gorgeous metallic sunburst yellow. And you can only try to imagine its beauty now. And then we see how this city is laid out with gold. Now, for those of you that like bling, you're really going to love this place, because there's a lot of bling here. <laughs> 
Two concepts that we can get out of this. Number one, it shows the type of quality of product that God puts out. The splendor of past cities of man can't compare to this unrivaled quality. And there's a reason why that you know, everyone has to be uh, you know, redeemed in order to get into this city. Because you could imagine with uh, maybe manhole color covers that are solid gold, people would come in and try to loot the place and take the manhole covers. So we know that the redeemed and no more sin has to happen for this to occur. The second point is that God puts such abundance on these precious metals. He's so much metals and stones that really we don't have the same value assigned to it. And it almost sounds like a contradiction to the first point, but in other words, precious stones, gold today, if you took a gold bullion, solid gold bullion, and put it in the middle of a city during rush hour, you'd see people clawing each other. I mean, it would just bring out the worst in folks to get that gold bullion because it's going to make them rich. But here you have just, there's gold everywhere. There's, there's diamonds everywhere, there's pearls, there's stones. So it, it's, it's actually more common in a sense, and it doesn't have the same value assigned to it. And that should show us that our focus, even today, should always be on God. Because if we're, you know, hurting each other for money and gold and all that stuff, listen, we're going to get it all for free later. And Jesus says that we should store up for treasures uh, in heaven now, not for the, the gold and, and, and the silver where, where, you know, people can break in and steal and, and rust and moth destroy. Uh, rust and moth destroy and all that kind of stuff, but to save up for ourselves treasures in heaven, the rewards, the Christ-likeness, making a difference in other people's lives, that's more important. Verse 22, the last few verses, he says, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's no temple in the city. Now, Temple, tabernacle, you see in this chapter that it's really used interchangeably. The tabernacle was a place that God commanded Moses as he, he made the tabernacle. It was really like a portable temple. And basically, you know, it had curtains and rods and, um, you know, two, two places and, and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. And when the children of Israel uh, wandered through the wilderness, they would pack it up when they were ready to move and they would carry it. And then wherever they stopped again, they would set it up, and you know this would go on for a while. Now, under Solomon, King Solomon, a permanent tabernacle, so to speak, was built, and that was called the temple. Okay, so the, you know Solomon's temple. You can see renditions of it. You can look on on the internet, and and based on the structure, it was a very fantastic um, structure where where God was to be worshipped, where God said, "In the holy of holies, there I will dwell. My Shekinah glory will be there." So the priest, when he went into the holy of holies, was really, in a sense, in God's presence. There was, I believe, when the temple was dedicated. Uh, when they finally dedicated it and built it, there was this smoke that came out. It was the smoke of the Lord. It was so incredible that all the priests ran out, you know, because they just couldn't stand in God's presence. So it really fantastic, you know, temple, tabernacle, and basically where God met the children of Israel. Okay, now God is meeting with us. Actually, let me go back to Genesis 3.8. If you read Genesis 3.8, okay, it tells us that God used to walk with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
Actually, uh, when Adam and Eve heard God walking in the cool of the garden, they hid themselves after they sinned. But you get the impression that, you know, God was just with them. He walked with them before sin and rebellion. That must have been pretty amazing. And then after that, sin and rebellion caused division, caused a rift between God and man. Then came, you know, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple became a remediation, okay, a, a reconciling back between God and man. Unfortunately, over time, God's people started worshiping the temple. They worshiped the gold of the temple. They worshiped the artifacts of the temple instead of worshiping God. The furniture was just a, a picture or a symbolism, a reminder of God and, and how to reach him. But they started worshiping the, the artifacts instead of God himself. Then came Jesus. Jesus literally, the Bible says, tabernacled or dwelled with people again. He was God incarnate walking on the earth and then the crucifixion. Now, let me just elucidate this with some further uh, scriptures. Number one, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah 7.14, okay, which we usually read during Christmas time, uh, 800 years prior to the Messiah, it talked about the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and his name will be Emmanuel in, in the uh, Hebrew, which literally means with us is God. So 800 years prior to the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah spoke about what the Messiah would be like, and, and really a hint, an indication to the miracle of this birth, and also that God would be with us in the form of the Messiah. The Old Testament prophet Haggai, 2, 6 through 9, which was 500 years prior to the Messiah, he spoke about, now check this out, Pastor Anthony, um, he, he did a study on this, it said that the glory of the latter temple would be greater than the glory of the former which makes some people scratch their heads because everyone knows that Solomon's temple, if you're a good Jew, you know that Solomon's temple was the greatest temple. And the, the latter temple was not really anything compared to Solomon's temple. As a matter of fact, Herod, uh, to please the Jews, re, re, revitalized the, the, second, or the temple and tried to make it a little bit more grandiose than it was. So here's a scripture where God is saying through his prophet that the glory of the latter temple would be greater than the former. But what Haggai goes on to explain is that the latter temple was great because the Messiah had visited it. 500 years later, the Messiah came and he was in the temple. And he said, the desire of all nations will come to the temple, which is idiomatic of the Messiah. So what he was trying to give us some insight is what made it glorious was the fact that God visited again. Matthew 12, 6, Jesus said, speaking of himself, one greater than the temple is here. The temple was a type of Christ in terms of it being the forum to mediate between a holy God and sinful man. Now, let me try to build an understanding of our new home in eternity. And I want to digress for a moment because, you know, I like to scratch where people itch. And there are those that have come to me, good Christians, privately, quietly, so nobody else can hear, and say to me things like, you know, I'm uneasy. I'm a little uncertain. This stuff kind of frightens me. What's it going to be like? What if I don't like it? What if I get bored? What if, you know, what if, what if, what if? Because it's the unknown. And as human beings, for some reason, we get set in a routine, and we don't like the unknown, do we? But what is your concept of home? What comes to your mind? Well, I think of it's a place for me to relax and unwind. I love home love to go home, take my shoes off, put my shorts on, whatever I have to do, sit in my flea bag easy chair that kind of molded to my body at this point. I want to relax. What also about home makes it home? Well, it's a place of safety. 
You go, you come home, you, you close your doors, whatever, and you, you're safe in your home. What else about home? It's a place to socialize, invite friends over, you know, people that, that are, are good to you, people that you, you get along with, and you socialize in your home. You want to invite them to your home. What else about your home? What calls it, what makes it considered home? A place to be yourself. You know, maybe you go to a job interview and you've got to be the best candidate. Maybe you go out to church and you have to put on, uh, hope, hopefully you don't have to, but to put on the facade that you're a great Christian. When you go home, you could just be yourself. You could relax, you could feel safe, you could be yourself, you could do all those things. Well, don't fear, because the home that God has prepared for us, I like my home too. You know, I like all the gardens that my wife has done outside and it's pretty and it's relaxing and there's a lot of animals and it's peaceful. But have no fear because all those qualities that we just spoke of, that's going to be your new home too. You'll be able to relax, you'll be able to socialize, you'll be able to be yourself, and there'll be a place of safety. And these are things that we need to talk about at times because it's something that we don't talk about in Christian circles because maybe some will look at you and think, well, you don't have enough faith. But it's questions that human beings here have about the future. 1 Corinthians 2.9, the Apostle Paul says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Very well said, Apostle Paul, because we can't comprehend it, but it's going to be great. Verse 23, there's no need of the sun or the moon. Let me go back to the Old Testament again, the book of Isaiah few verses, Isaiah 60, 19 through 22. Talk about a parallel. Isaiah, written roughly 800 years before Christ, says this in verse 19. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, for by brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And the days of your mourning shall be ended, and your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. In other words, there's no need anymore of any created thing to give light. Well, right now, you know, God set up the planets, and they move around the sun, and and the moon moves around the earth, and you know, depending on where the sun is and the earth, you get day and you get night, day and night. You sleep at night, you awake during the day, unless you work shift work like me. But um, basically, now there's no more created uh, creation that's going to give us light. God is actually going to give us light. And let's think about that for a minute. What do we know about the properties of visible light? We know that it travels a velocity of 186,000 miles per second. We know that it is on the range of the electromagnetic, electromagnetic spectrum somewhere in the middle that our retinal cells can perceive, 380 nanometers to 760, and the wavelengths are very small. So basically, the electromagnetic spectrum that God set up, somewhere in the middle of it is the uh, picture of visible light that our human uh, retinal cells can pick up. Now, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something totally different and foreign to us. First Timothy 6 13 through 16, or 15 through 16. It says, He will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate or sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, 
dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. The Bible also tells us that nobody can see God and live. We know that Elijah and Moses saw a portion of God. We know that the priests were able to experience a portion of the Shekinah glory. But nobody can see God in his purest state with our fleshly bodies and live, the Bible tells us. So he dwells in inapproachable light. Now, God's light right now, if we were to see his full glory, would probably fry us in our current state. But there will be a time with our new bodies that will have the capacity later to perceive and enjoy God's glorious light. Okay, and it's only something that words on a page, do the best you can, use your imagination. But when we see it, you're probably not going to remember today at all. You're just going to be so in awe of his light shining through those stones. You know, it's light all the time. Pretty amazing. Now, two verses speak of the kings and nations. Let me just help with that. Um, walking in the light and bringing glory and honor. I believe the new earth will be populated, and even those in leadership, if there is a leadership, does say the kings, will pay homage to the Lord. Just because, just because God is living with us doesn't make him any less holy. All right? And the best example I could come up with is, if your father is the king, or your father is the president, you don't respect him any less because you're related to him. He's still the king, and he's still the president. And that's really something for us believers to keep in mind here. We serve the king. And just because we're saved and just because we're going to heaven doesn't mean we should respect him any less, respect his word any less, or have our behavior below any particular standards because our father is the king. Verse 25 through 27, it says there'll be no night, no reason to close the gates. We know that the ancients built gates and walls. You look at Jericho, you look at some of these uh, Babylon, uh, I believe 200 high foot walls, and um, they were, it was so thick, the walls, that you could run three chariots abreast. The historians tell us that. But the ancients built walls for protection so that no crime or no evil or no warmongers could get in. But of course, that's not going to be the case here. And there's also going to be no night. So that would, again, postulate that there will always be light which probably means that there's no need for sleep. And for those of us as we get older, sleep becomes more elusive to us anyway, and it's more of a hassle than anything else, uh, so we won't need to sleep. Now, if there's no sleep, what do we need sleep for today? Again, look it up in your dictionary or encyclopedia. Sleep we need for repair of our bodies, right? We need it for repair of our brains. We need it for somatic growth, memory, and to boost our immune system. So it probably means that if we don't need sleep, that we won't have these problems. And I like that too. So the more I learn about heaven, I'm really digging this place. You know, the Bible says no more crying, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain for the former things have passed away. So let's just, we're just going through this logically. I hope I'm not being too logic, but we're going through this logically to see that this is going to be a great place. I love taking a nap. Why? Because I'm tired because I can't function. So when I fall asleep and take a nap and I wake up and I'm like, ah, oh, it feels great. Every day we're going to feel great without having to take a nap, I believe. Verse 27, no more abominations, defilement, or lies. I believe that we won't ever have the capacity to sin again. That's going to be a thing of the past too. Well, well how, how do we know this whole Adam and Eve thing won't start up again? How, what if one person really messes it up for the rest of us? I don't think that's going to be the case. You know, it talks about forever and ever, and I'm going to cover that in the next chapter. Everything, understand how this no abominations, no defilement, no more lies is also predicated on everything 
uh, or, or being in the Lamb's Book of Life. And what I'm basically trying to tell you is that, and what you know from the scripture is, we're not getting to eternity on our own merits. You've got to be found written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And are you found written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You know, if you're not, or you're not sure, maybe God is calling you through this message. It's not me moving you, believe me. It's God's Word. If you're moved by what you're hearing today, it's because God's Word is moving you, and He is calling you. Well, how do I know if I'm in the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, choose Him. (laughs) It's that whole thing with the doorway. You know, the whole thing between election and predestination, and and I've heard this example many times. You know, the door says um, free will or choice. Jesus, you choose. You open the door and close it, and it says election on the other side. There's the debate. So if God is calling you through this message, and I'm sure he is if you don't know the Lord, be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And what's interesting is you may be written there now and not even realize it yet, and that's really even more interesting to think about. A few things about today's sermon, or one thing about it, is this new Jerusalem screams direct access to God. This new Jerusalem, this new home, this new place, this new mindset screams a closer relationship to God. And I said it, I believe it was last Sunday, God is now tabernacling with men. God is literally dwelling with men, and it's something that, yeah, God's going to live with us, that's really cool. Man, but when he's living with you, and he's close to you, and you can reach out and touch him, you're going to be like, wow, this is greater than I ever expected. And again, for us... 41 years old, you know, some of you are 60, some of you are older. You're not used to that, but you're going to get used to it, and it's going to be good. Jesus conquered the sin curse. He conquered hell's punishment at the cross. You just need to believe and receive that free gift of life. There will come a day when I will be as close to my Father in heaven as I'm close to my son now. And it's just, it's just a thing. I love my son, you know, and as I get closer to him and I could give him a hug, man, there's... It feels great inside. My wife, relationships, okay? And the the person that you love the most, that you're closest with, that's how close you will be tangibly to your Father in heaven. I love the life that God has given me now, but think about this. My joy now, I have joy. I love my life. Every day I wake up, I'm like, ah, it's a new experience. Some experiences are worse than others. <laughs> Sometimes I can't wait till night so I can go back to sleep and do the reset thing. And hopefully it's different in the morning. <laughs> oh, that wasn't a dream. Oh, it's terrible. But my joy now, my joy now comes from the hope of future things. I love my life now. If I have a week left or seven years or 30 years, it doesn't matter. I love my life now. But understand that my joy comes from what's going to happen afterwards you see there's the 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 carrot at the end of the stick there's the light at the end of the tunnel you know there's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow i see that and that's where my joy comes from knowing that wherever my life is now it's going to become incrementally exponentially better that's where my joy comes from the hope you know we we heard about hope during the elections but you know A lot of people have used that, and unfortunately, coming from a man, there is no hope. But the hope is what the Bible tells us and the promises he gives us. 1 Corinthians 2.9 Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I believe that, and nobody can move me away from that promise, and that promise the Lord has given me and you. Let's pray. Father in heaven.